Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, January 10th, 2021, and a hell of a week in yes. terms of news events. Insane. Absolutely insane. Not to forget that the Democrats took control of the Senate this week, but some of the Sunday shows actually did forget that because of what happened on... Oh, all the shows I watched, nobody mentioned On it. Wednesday. No, well, it was mentioned. Well, maybe it was mentioned once or twice. Yeah, that seems like a lifetime ago. Of course, the dominating story beyond the global pandemic, the dominating story this week is the attack on, on the Capitol this past Wednesday when Congress was supposed to certify the Electoral College votes and officially, officially make Joe Biden our president-elect. Yeah. So Trump held a rally, as we all know, um, in which he said, among other things, I think it's important to note some of the things he actually said. Here's just one one thing he said to his rally goers after promoting it heavily and saying it I mean, will, for weeks, yeah. literally for weeks, and trying saying, to get this event in this day and promoting the travel of people to D.C. for January 6th. And saying it will be wild, exclamation point. At the rally, he said to his assembled 8,000 people, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And indeed, they did fight like hell. As the head of the Capitol Police Force describes, quote, as soon as they hit the fence line to the Capitol building, which Trump encouraged them to go to, right? He encouraged them to go to the Capitol building. So the head of the D.C. police force said, as soon as they hit the fence line, the fight was on. Violent confrontations from the start. They came with riot helmets, gas masks, shields, pepper spray, fireworks, climbing gear, climbing gear, explosives, metal pipes, baseball bats. I have never seen anything like it in 30 years of events in Washington. And that's from a fantastic exclusive that the Washington Post had where they actually spoke with the head, the former head of the Capitol Police. So after that initial clash with police, these people breached the Capitol building and just pushed, basically pushed their way through, I think it's over 1,400 police officers. Capitol Police. Capitol Police made it into the chambers and sent the vice president along with every member of Congress, Senate and House, fleeing for their lives. Including their staff, yes. as well, including journalists and media. And five people, as we know, I think five or six... I think there was a sixth Yes, today. have died as a result of this, including a Capitol Police officer two, who, who was Capitol murdered, and one, I believe, who committed suicide is the news. Yeah, so that was part of, like you mentioned, Brennan, a really powerful story in the Washington Post that came out this evening looking at the preparation and response in that attack. The news coverage this week has been incredible and scary and also inspiring the work that these journalists are doing. This is a really 
important story that if you were watching the live coverage, it didn't necessarily represent the full scale of the danger, of the risk, of the fear of yeah. of congressmen and women and senators and Capitol Police. Like, it's actually been in the aftermath coverage that we're understanding the full extent of this horror that literally took place on Wednesday at the Capitol. And so... It's from a news perspective, it's something to really marvel at the work that these journalists are doing in the face of such hate, to to be frank, right? And, well, yeah, and I actual mean, danger. Right. And they're, they were attacked, right? I mean, journalists, their cameras were destroyed, smashed. By they were hiding with everyone else in yeah. the Capitol as well. Yeah. So it's... I mean, we obviously focus on the Sunday morning political shows, and we're going to do that exclusively today, too. But I just kind of want to, before we get into it, talk about, you know, and you know, recognize and recognize the national newspapers, the Washington Post and the New York Times have had some phenomenal coverage. The stories, the firsthand stories from reporters, we've seen it online, in print. The Reliable Sources podcast had a really fantastic interview that kind of went through looking at the people who were there, the the rioters and attackers themselves. And I just really, really encourage people to think about what type of news they're consuming and trying to understand this and making sure you're challenging yourself to understand it as best you can. Because there's so many angles and there's so many perspectives, it's really easy to miss a piece. And I mean, we have to stay sane because this story is so horrific, but it's really a feat of journalism to try to tell all of these stories and explain as much as we can. And I just kind of wanted to start the show recognizing that. Absolutely. As our listeners remember, we've recently in the last few weeks changed up our format Brendan watches some of the shows, I watch the other ones, and we kind of present our findings to each other on the microphones. We did it, we, we still did that today, but we yes. did it a little bit differently in terms of how we're organizing our thoughts. We kind of identified major themes or components of the coverage that we saw across the shows today, and then we'll present our findings within that. So there was a few angles, and we'll just briefly review the different pieces we want to talk about. So one, it's how Wednesday's attack was characterized by the shows themselves. Second, we'll look at the lack of federal preparation. Third, we're going to talk about really the White House response during and since Wednesday's attack. Fourth, we're going to look at the Republican Party itself, what this means for them, what kind of accountability they might face. And in this section, we'll begin this section with a uh, Thoughts from Chuck Todd himself. We reached out to him to ask his perspective and did get a response from him reflecting on the interview that he did last week and how he sees that in light of the events that took place on Wednesday. Yeah, very, very interesting update on that angle. Fifth, we're going to look at the accountability. What does this mean for the remaining days of President Trump and his future overall? And finally, we're going to look at what this means for the future. So, Lots of little segments. We're going to just do quick hits here. And why don't we begin with how the shows characterized this this attack, this yeah. siege. So before we dive in, Brendan, what did you watch today? Oh, yes, of course. So I took a look at Meet the Press. I also looked at State of the Union. And I also looked at ABC's This Week. 
Yeah, I watched Fox News Sunday and Face the Nation. Now, all my shows were hosted by the main host this week. I assumed that that would be the case, and it was. Is that the case for you as well? Yes, absolutely. They had to show up for this one. Yeah, this is not a week you want to miss. So the in terms of how Wednesday's attack was characterized, I found some of the strongest language in Fox News Sunday was in the intro itself, both in describing Wednesday's attack and also how it connects to President Trump. We saw the president of the United States urge tens of thousands of people not to accept the results of the election, to march on Congress and demand they stop the steal. We saw senators, self-proclaimed adherents to the text of the Constitution, ignore the 155 million Americans who voted and say Congress should decide who the next president is. We saw a mob of insurrectionists storm the Capitol, lay waste to the offices of elected leaders, invade the Senate chamber, and even sit in the chair the vice president occupied moments before. And now this. We saw a non-scalable seven-foot fence go up around the Capitol grounds. For all the talk about the barrier on our southern border, this is the wall many will remember as the true mark of Donald Trump's presidency. Wow, Naomi, I was really interested to know how Fox News Sunday would cover things today. And there are definitely some things that stand out to me in that introduction. I think it gets a lot of things right, but it also... In my, just in this initial listening, seems like he's underplaying what took place there. That the thing that was most outrageous to him was even sitting in the chair the vice president occupies. I don't think the fact that the vice president's chair was sat in was like the main problem. I think the fact that the crowd was chanting, hang Pence, and they had a noose up and wanted to kill him. I think that's probably a little more outrageous than someone sitting in his chair. Yeah, there was... There was a very weird tone that I found across Fox News Sunday in that they clearly thought, they being Chris Wallace, clearly thought once the attack was an embarrassment, was in something very shameful, something that they couldn't believe happened. But there wasn't a level, I would say, of disgust that I've seen in the other news that I've been consuming the last few days. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, was that your sense about this about this intro? Is that why you kind of like how you would have framed it? For me, what I found really interesting is that he connects it to President Trump's wall, right? Mm-hmm. And so this promise is now a representation of his failures. Yeah. And I think that is very telling. And we've, there's so many Trump metaphors you can use to make that connection, you know, American carnage is is another term that I've seen a lot of people kind of do a loop back to his inauguration speech. When he said those words. Right. And it was such a dark speech. Oh right. My God. Literally in the same steps, right, of the, yes. of the Capitol. And so I guess that's the part that I was surprised that Chris Wallace was, he was pinning the legacy of President Trump on this moment. Yeah. I mean, it's something we're going to have to reassess. I mean, everything about Trump and his legacy and what he wanted to stand for and the way we thought about him. One thing that I noticed throughout, and we can maybe talk about it later, is when people were reflecting back on Trump and whether there were maybe some early warning signs that he would take things this far, it reminded me so much of those moments after you hear about a a shooter who shoots up somewhere 
uh, you know, and, and kills a bunch of people in a mass shooting. And then they go and they, they famously will interview the neighbors next door who are like, no, we never thought he could have done this. Or you hear things like, oh, well, yeah, you know, he was very disturbed and, and you know, he had all these priors. It's often the latter. <laughs> right, right. And the fact that they were kind of like going back and looking at Trump's record in the same way and reassessing that record is, uh, I guess, presaged here in this clip from Chris Wallace. Were there any intros or context language that you found notable in the shows you watched? Yeah, I mean, both This Week and State of the Union came out swinging on this issue uh, in different ways. So George Stephanopoulos was very specific, literally, literally the first seconds of his show about not calling these protesters, not even calling these rioters, but calling the people who invaded the Capitol domestic terrorists and backing it up. They don't get to steal it from us. We want our country back. Domestic terrorists encouraged by the president desecrate the Capitol. Don't dare call them protesters. They were a riotous mob, insurrectionists, domestic terrorists. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. What happened yesterday is textbook terrorism. January 6th will go down as one of the darkest days in recent American history. So there's this week right from the start saying this is who these people are. This is what has struck us. And, you know, connecting it with you know, darkest days of our history with like 9-11. You know, it's very similar in the the shock to the political system and our country. Yeah, and I think reinforcing it with all the language of other public officials who are making that same exact claim. Yeah, and then on State of the Union, Jake Tapper, he was outraged not only by what the president did before the riot, during the riot, but also the way he's reacted since and really characterizing who this person is and who Republicans are and what they're learning. The flags at the U.S. Capitol are at half-staff this morning for the police officer, Brian Sicknick, who was murdered this week. But they are not at half-staff at the White House, perhaps because Officer Sicknick was the enemy of the terrorist mob. And the mob loves Trump. The mob, by trying to intimidate, threaten, or even kill the vice president and members of Congress, who were counting the electoral votes, that mob was in turn loved back by Trump. According to Republican Senator Ben Sass, White House aides told him that the president was, quote, delighted watching the insurrection. In Trump's view, they were fighting for him. Trump put out a statement, we love you, he said, after the attack. You're very special. Now, it might be difficult to hear these words. It's difficult to say them because it's so ugly, but it's true. The flag isn't down at the White House because the president is not mourning Officer Sicknick. He hasn't personally decried the terrorists in any way because the president loves the terrorists. And he reportedly has not even spoken to his own vice president, whose life was at risk those who protect since Wednesday. Place. The images of this attack are so shocking that many of Trump's enablers are finally, with just a few days left in his presidency, beginning to get the goddamn point that his continuous lies and humoring of racists and winks and nods to violent extremists are dangerous. I saw your eyes open at that. Yeah, wow, that's very, I mean, even for Jake Tapper terms, very strong language against Trump there. I've, I don't think I've ever heard him, any of these hosts curse. I know, they're trying to win me over. Yeah, the things that stood out to me were, first of all, the Republicans are beginning to, to get the goddamn point, which is, I think, underscores months 
of Jake Tapper's frustration and a lot of these journalists' frustration at Republicans who were humoring President Trump with baseless claims of election fraud. And then the other thing that stood out to me was the president loves the terrorists. I mean, the fact that that was written, and yet it's true, right? I mean, Trump specifically he said, said it. we, we love-, love you to these domestic terrorists. I mean, it's insane, but that's true. It's true. And it was a very, very important and very strong statement to start the show. We next wanted to discuss the lack of preparation of federal law enforcement agencies. There's been a lot of social media buzz about how could they have not seen how could they how they miss this? Right. This was yeah. all over Twitter. This was all over Facebook. This was all over Parler. It was all over Reddit. You know, people making these threats, making these claims. How did they drop the ball? And that is all very true. And as we mentioned, there's phenomenal reporting happening in especially, I would say, the Washington Post and the New York Times. But it was a failure at multiple, multiple levels. Yeah. On Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan spoke to former cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency director Chris Krebs. In no uncertain terms, he made it clear that he thought President Trump should resign and that he is has a direct link to the violence that occurred on Wednesday. But I thought Margaret Brennan made a really interesting case that federal authorities less than a year ago were almost bragging that they had the authority to intervene in cities across America if there was a threat. But yet we did not see that on Wednesday. Basically, you're saying like what happened in Portland? Is that what you're talking right, about? That they right. That they had the authority to do that. I mean, Homeland Security warned back in October that right wing groups may use political rallies and they actually pose a direct threat in terms of uh, uh, action. But then during the Black Lives Matter protest this summer, you know, the Homeland Security Secretary was on this program and others touting the fact that the federal government could put federal agents in cities, whether mayors or governors wanted them there or not, that they had the power to do more. So, you know, why not do more if within the agency there were the threats that you just highlighted? Whose fault is that? Again, the investigations, we'll get down to it, and particularly in the District of Columbia, the federal authorities on federal land, like the National Mall, like the Capitol grounds, have even greater authorities than they would in, uh, in, in a, any, any American city. So clearly there was some sort of coordination and pre-planning breakdown. Uh, you know, what I would be thinking about right now is what happens on the 20th. Mm-hmm. What are the protections that are going to be in place. But but there is an opportunity here, I think, to to prevent further uh, further bloodshed. I thought this was a really important point to make, right? While the Capitol is in D.C., it is on federal, the Capitol building itself is on federal land. The National Mall is on federal land. And, and federal authorities have even more jurisdiction in like those specific properties to do what they will or to do what they want. And the fact that they didn't intervene, the fact that they were so slow to provide backup to Capitol Police is even that much more of a travesty. It wasn't that they had to coordinate with, you know, D.C. police or whatever. Like, that's the land that they already manage. Absolutely. And on top of that, when you talk about the National Guard, the National Guard don't Usually, they res- they are actually at the behest of 
the governor of a state, but D.C. is famously not a state, even though, as Jake Tapper underlined, it has many times the population of several U.S. states. We're looking at you, Wyoming. (laughs) And because D.C. does not have a governor, the National Guard doesn't actually answer to the D.C. mayor. It answers to the president. Exactly. and The executive branch. Yeah, it was really interesting, too, because... Also on Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan spoke with D.C. Mayor Mariel Bowser. Oh. And, I mean, the whole interview I thought was really interesting. And and Mayor Bowser talks about how these are truly domestic terrorists. But I thought there was a really valuable question towards the start of the interview in which Margaret Brennan asks about a supposed letter that was sent earlier in January where there was some question about whether or not the federal authorities should intervene. And Mayor Bowser had a really clarifying answer for me, at least. Take a listen. Uh, Madam Mayor, there's a lot of finger pointing, as you know, about exactly how this happened on Wednesday. Um, Back on January 5th, you sent a letter to the Pentagon and the Justice Department saying the district is not requesting other federal law enforcement personnel and discourages any additional deployments without immediate notification and consultation with the police if such plans are underway. Do you think this letter played a role in the underreaction? No, I, I, what I know is that the district prior to that had already requested federal um, support and had been granted it uh, in the form of the DC National Guard. And the DC National Guard had been deployed and received its assignment. Uh, what we called, uh, that letter calls attention to the federal government for other federal policing agencies Uh, and ask the federal government to coordinate with us if they were going to be on D.C. streets. That letter has nothing to do with the the Capitol or other federal facilities. Interesting. Very interesting. And, you know, I think that's like a small detail that you could just like see on Twitter. I mean, hypothetically, someone saying, well, look, the mayor said not to come. Right. Like that's something you could so easily see spin out of control in terms of misinformation land online. And I thought this was really clarifying that Mayor Bowser saying like, no, it was about the rest of the city. It had nothing to do with the buildings that they were already in charge of. Yeah. So at the same time, these preparations aren't happening or should have been happening. As we mentioned, more and more people are getting activated and excited to come down to this to this mess of what we saw in the Capitol on January 6th. And Meet the Press highlighted that this isn't just happening like on the dark web. This is happening in very, very mainstream seeming places. And for days, Trump supporters and QAnon followers made their January 6th intentions crystal clear. The phony don't blame us narrative is just one of many being given oxygen by a news environment that allows audiences to live in their own alternative reality comfort zones. And this is not happening on the dark web. It is in plain sight, on channels that you and your family interact with every day and somehow claim to be fair. Very explicit calling out Fox News there for their role in this. And as you reminded me, Naomi, Chuck Todd had a whole segment on QAnon. Yeah, just last week. Just last week. Like, recognizing this was something big and needed to be talked about. And I do want to note, Chuck Todd did address his raspy voice at some point right before his first interview, saying, sorry, it's been a long week and I've been on TV, like, nonstop. But I I, I heard it at the start of the show, and I thought, this actually feels fitting. It's like he's, like, 
he's like it's like aged him this process <laughs> right yeah well this environment that chuck todd is talking about i think is really crucial and at least in the shows that i watched i feel like they didn't get too deep into to this component but i think it's really important we keep in mind that 8000 people went to the capitol and not all of them like we all seen the picture of like the guy from arizona shirtless painted and with the fur vest right and the horns on his and the horn yeah head. that's right the horns the on Vikings his head right? horn yeah thing. we all saw that guy we all saw the zip tie guy we all saw like there's like these key figures that are like so scary and so dumb and like all of them arrested now yeah all of them as yeah. far as i know right 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 but what i'm saying is that's not the full 8000 like the full 8000 also included a lot of people from your school and people from your community and like your extended you know your your aunt's husband or whatever like people yeah. you interact with who believe this and to dismiss them all as like alt-right fringe extremists what have you loses sight of the responsibility we all have to recognize how close to our circles these you know people who feel this way about our country actually truly are and I mentioned at the top of the show, Brian Stelter did an interview a CNN reporter. Ellie Reeves. Ellie Reeves. And that, I thought that interview was fascinating about how normal a lot of these people are. How normal some of the people who are scaling up the walls are. Well, yeah, I mean, the I think the point that Ellie Reeves points out, and she's been studying these groups and organizations for a while, for a really long time, well before this, this riot took place. And the point she makes is, often we assume that these are kind of radicalized extremist people who glom on to Trump or QAnon and and then go. But she says, no, these are people who were radicalized by Trump, through Trump. Right. That Trump, if Trump was not there, they would not be radicalized. And that's, but they that's are. And, that, and, and there's a lot of them now. So like, what do we do now? Yes. Right. right. So, so, so that takes us to Trump. Yeah, that's the perfect segue to Trump. Part three. And one of the key people that I heard interviewed as it comes to Trump was Mick Mulvaney, the former chief of staff to Donald Trump, former director of OMB. And until literally this event, he was the ambassador to Ireland, I think. I think you're right. Ireland. Mick Mulvaney was I want to talk about this interview that he had on Meet the Press. He was on other shows as well. He was on Fox News Sunday. Too. Yeah. And Mick Mulvaney went on and one of his main points was, look. What Trump did is unacceptable. However, however, we'd, I, I didn't see it coming. This is so different from what Trump ever said before, right? That was kind of the point he kept trying to make and sort of absolve himself and Absolutely. others of taking responsibility or of doing something to stop it before it went, you know. Right, kind of giving everyone who's been on Team Trump saying this was not the train that we no were on. No one could have seen it coming. And Chuck Todd pushed back. He knew, he and his team knew that this was going to be probably the position that was going to be taken. And they were at the ready. Take a listen. His rhetoric, incendiary rhetoric, goes back far greater than just the last few weeks. Here's some examples. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is. I don't know. Probably. Stand back and stand by. 
you see where I'm going here. It, it is one of these things you are basically saying, I didn't see this version of Donald Trump. A lot of us, with all due respect, said, yeah, we, we saw this version of Donald Trump to us didn't change. This was the guy we saw um, celebrating violence in 16, and it just sort of carried through to sadly this inevitable conclusion. Yeah. And I know it's I know it's easy for folks now who've never liked the president or always disagreed with his policies or, or really disliked him as a person to say, why didn't everybody see this coming? But keep in mind, so many of us that worked with him every single day didn't see him through a filter. In fairness, you throw you mm-hmm. saw him oftentimes you, you've had some face to face with him. But most people saw him through the filter of a media that didn't like him very much. We saw him every single day. The reason that I wrote in The Wall Street Journal six weeks ago that I thought the president would leave presidentially is because I had evidence to that end. I had stories, I had background, I had seen that type of president. And I never thought I'd see what I saw on Wednesday. Yes, the rhetoric was very high and very, very fiery. You and I both know, however, that American politicians do this on a regular basis. I could pull you similar clips of Maxine Waters telling people to take to the streets. It's different, though, when, as you said in your entry, um, that people took him literally. I never thought I'd see that. I'd never thought I'd see a day in our country where people from any side of the political spectrum would storm the Capitol in order to intentionally stop the constitutional transfer of Mm -hmm. power, which is part of what was happening on Wednesday. Gee, I can't believe Americans are taking their president seriously. This is this man's defense. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to, this just brought to mind, I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. It's, you know, it's almost like, (laughs) what do they say when someone's going into therapy and they're like, oh, you've got a lot. It's going to take many therapy sessions to get through this question. But (laughs) one thing this brings to mind is the Rudy Giuliani quote, where Rudy Giuliani actually said at the rally moments before people marched to the Capitol, which Trump suggested and said he was going to go to, but did not. He went to the White House. Rudy Giuliani said to these folks, he suggested that they needed to engage in trial by combat. Combat. Trump says you have to fight. You have to be strong. And interestingly, Trump points out in his speech that, you know, Democrats are going to do what Democrats do. But you really have to focus on these Republicans who aren't fighting and aren't being strong. And you you need to make them be strong. And then what do they do? They get to the Capitol and they scream, where's Pence? Where's Pence? Hang Pence. And Trump, outraged by Pence refusing to illegally, unconstitutionally try to throw the election his way, Trump, outraged by this fact, tweets at the moment that Pence is literally running for his life with his family there, by the way. All of his family is there with him. Trump tweets that Pence is didn't do what's right, didn't do the right thing, putting a target, a further target on his back. But anyway, I want to give credit to the Meet the Press team for finding those clips and reminding us that Donald Trump has always, and I want to point out here, Donald Trump here in these clips that we just heard that Meet the Press brought to our attention, Donald Trump is not saying he agrees with violent things other people brought up. Donald Trump is suggesting violence. He is suggesting violence. It's not violence that he's reacting to. He is bringing into a conversation where there is no violence, the suggestion of violence. When somebody is heckling him at one of his events, he suggests that they should have been taken out on a stretcher. He is suggesting that they enact violence against that person, right? 
when when Donald Trump is talking about Hillary Clinton potentially having the ability to pick Supreme Court judges, he says that there's nothing you can do, although the Second Amendment people, the people who have guns, might be able to do something about it. He is suggesting guns. It's a discussion of the Supreme Court, and he decides to suggest that people use guns to do something about it. Good for Meet the Press in bringing these examples there, because no matter what Mick Mulvaney says here, and he says a lot of stuff, it doesn't stand up against hearing the actual words from Donald Trump himself. Well, and like we should think about what Mulvaney is saying. Mulvaney is defending the legacy of Trump by saying pretty much Wednesday's attack is not reflective of all the work that was done. That, you know, he says that this is different, at least on Fox News Sunday, he says this is different and tries to kind of remind viewers that supposedly the media didn't like President Trump. And so there was always that filter on President Trump. He's trying to force people to remember the full picture of the Trump administration. But Wednesday's attack is reflective of those full four years. Like, it's almost like they're looking at it separately, right? Mm. Mulvaney is trying to say, these are two separate things. There's the work that we did in this administration, and then there's this horrible thing that happened on Wednesday, and they're very different, and there was a lot of good people working on all that other stuff, and we weren't even, like, we never even touched this Wednesday garbage. Like, that that's not on us. That's like these other people, or, you know, things are different. And what the media is trying to say is, no, they are connected. Connected. Wednesday yes. happened because of the previous four years. And I mean, maybe this is taking a lot of analysis to be able to kind of come up with that. But I encourage our viewers to think about that, right? Are the Republicans you're listening to admitting that Wednesday is a reflection of the last four years? Or is it trying to say this is a new moment? This is something new we have to worry about. This is a new angle of the Republican base that we have to try to understand. Or are they going to recognize that they've been, you know, really tying themselves to this rabid base all along, right, Republicans all along these last few years, that Trump has encouraged that, facilitated that, and now they're all tied up together. Well, kind of towards that end, Jake Tapper on State of the Union did a very similar thing. And where before at the start of this week, we highlighted the use of the term domestic terrorist, State of the Union uses terrorism in a different context. This is on Jake Tapper's, part of Jake Tapper's closing statement, which was rather long today. But I just want to highlight this part. Regular viewers know that we have often discussed the threat of stochastic terrorism posed by the president, his demonization and falsehoods about groups and individuals, which once injected into the political bloodstream could result in someone taking a nonspecific cue and acting out with no specific fingerprints, such as the evil domestic terrorists in Charlottesville who committed violence while defending a Confederate monument. They killed Heather Heyer and injured others, thugs and terrorists about whom President Trump equivocated. Or the murderous maniacs who heard the president and others spreading the conspiracy theory that George Soros, a prominent Jewish American, was funding caravans of Latin Americans coming into the U.S. to do harm. They heard that and then they killed Jews at the Tree of Life Synagogue. They heard that and they killed Latinos in El Paso. And Trump kept fueling those fires. Stochastic terrorism. No specific directive. Demagoguery followed by violence. Now, President Trump's fingerprints are far easier to detect today. After two months of lies, 
amplified by sycophants such as House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. So this is almost exactly the same thing that we heard on Meet the Press, where they are tying Trump's past actions to violence. But in this case, not suggested violence, not rhetorical violence, but literal violence. Violence as a result of things that he said and issues that he raised. It's interesting because in looking at the two clips you just showed, Brendan, for this section, Mulvaney on Meet the Press and Jake Tapper's closing, what they're doing here is connecting President Trump to this overall environment of hostility and hate that has led to violence. And it's yeah. it's very meta, right? So then it's kind of easy to weasel their way out of in terms of defenders of Trump. On Face the Nation, John Dickerson was on, and they definitely did that too. But one thing that I thought was really powerful is that John Dickerson also made it very specific. And he noted how Trump's rhetoric directly put Vice President Pence in danger. When it comes to, I mean, some of the extraordinary things we we heard and we saw this week, you know, the president has, yes, he told people to go home, but then he said, we love you, you're patriots. He has not come out and said anything about the chance calling for his vice president to be executed, John. You're, you're exactly right, Mark. This, to me, was, there are a lot of ways in which the president contributed to what happened on the 6th. But the example of what he was willing to trample in order to get his way is clearest in the, in the grotesque treatment of his vice president. He, he says loyalty is the most important thing. No one has been more loyal to this president than Mike Pence. He has wagered his tr- entire reputation defending the president. How was he repaid? The president said he could stop the count in Congress. He knew that to be a lie. When Mike Pence didn't do that because he couldn't do it, the president said he lacked courage. He put a target on the back of his vice president. And what happened? As sure as night follows day, those, those rioters said, hang Mike Pence. Hang Mike Pence. What gave them the idea that Mike Pence had done anything worthy of a hanging? Well, the president of the United States told them that. The person to whom Mike Pence was loyal. That's pretty low. What a case study, huh? What a case study in Donald Trump's, the blood that is literally on his hands. The psyche. Yeah. The psyche and also just his character as a person. Hearing John Dickerson describe it here, you know, putting it all together, all the pieces together, which we know and which I even just randomly said, putting a target on Mike Pence's back just moments ago, not knowing you had this clip, which is what happens, I guess, here. Yeah. But hearing him say this makes me think if Trump has the capacity to do any planning at all, did he intentionally set Mike Pence up as the fall guy, as the person whom he could throw all of his, all of the ire and all of the frustration and anger at the failure of Trump himself of being able to overturn the election? Did he think, Mike Pence is my guy, he's my fall guy. I'm going to set it up like he can do something. And when he doesn't do it, he's the enemy, not me. I didn't. I did everything I I could. I did everything I could. And Mike Pence stabbed me in the back. And there it is, easy to set him up for a 2024 run for re-election if, if Trump wants to do that and yeah, say, well, I mean, why, would I, why would I support Pence? Pence right. stabbed me in the back. Right. I mean, we don't know, right? We don't know yeah, exactly. the extent of the forethought of, of this president. But that is something that occurred to me that I hadn't thought before right. until I heard this. But it's the power of storytelling, right? And yes. journalists are storytellers. There's the storytellers of history as it's occurring. And and Dickerson is a literal historian. L- yeah, he's literally <laughs> a historian. He's the best. But 
They're very different approaches to understanding what's before us. And I think it's important. I don't even, I, I'm, I'm, I take it back. I, I prefer Dickerson's storytelling, but I think there's value in both ways, the meta story and the specific story, because there's too many people who are going to dismiss the meta story, right? They're going to be like, he didn't actually tell anybody to do anything. He didn't know they were going to do that. Like there's so many ways you can kind of not acknowledge the reality of Trump's culpability. No, well, no, his, his, his thirst for hostility and anger and hate that has been his whole presidency, right? Some people are just going to be like, that's who he is. He, you know, he works differently. But when you hear it very specific that he he blamed Vice President Pence for doing something he didn't have the authority to do and then put the all the ire of his supporters on him, the consequences of Trump's language is just so very real in yeah, yeah. one very specific instance, which happens to be literally his VP. And so it, it's just it's very powerful. And, you know, Mike Pence is not my favorite person in our government, but what happened to him on Wednesday is completely unjustified. And having someone like John Dickerson explain it in this way, I think, is really important and really valuable. And I kind of wish we had like a full time host who thought in the same way that Dickerson does, because I think that way of explaining horrific moments or issues or stories or policy proposals is really missing. Well, we once did, and here he is doing it. He's so back, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that uh, Margaret Brennan invites him on. Uh, I, one point I want to point out just in the whole Pence story that Dickerson, one little thing that he missed was, and that it's important to say, Trump said this about Pence while the Capitol was breached, while there was not enough security there, and people were in the Capitol with, as was described, weapons of many kinds. Yeah. And Trump was... It was an active situation. And Trump was acutely aware that it was breached. It's not like, oh, well, he didn't know it was breached at that moment. Yeah, he did. By everyone's account, he was sitting watching the TV. That's what Trump was doing. But I mean, the thing is, even if he didn't, even if he didn't know it was breached, that's still a wildly irresponsible yes. thing to do. Yes, yes, yes. So let's move on to the Republican Party. Part four, the Republican Party. <laughs> this is, I feel like we need like a, a title screen like we would see on some show, you know? <laughs> yeah. Little typewriter sounds. So we promised we would, and we do want to start with... Well, hold on. Let's back up. Why... Oh, apparently we're not. <laughs> Go <laughs> no, ahead. No, like, what was the motivation? G- give our listeners some context as to why we wanted to check in with Chuck Todd. Yeah, so we checked in with Chuck Todd this week after the events that took place. And it was actually a longtime listener of the show, close personal friend, who reached out after what happened on Wednesday and asked me a very simple question, which is, are you going to kind of revisit your thinking about Chuck Todd's decision last week to invite Senator Ron Johnson onto the show? If you remember, Ron Johnson was one of the, I believe, six senators who had decided that they were going to challenge Joe Biden's electoral win during the Electoral College count on Wednesday. Yeah. And they had so, announced they would do that. Yeah. So Ron Johnson was on Meet the Press last week. There was a lot of blowback for having Ron Johnson on because he has previously lied and been deceitful on the show. And the question was like, why are you bringing on someone who 
you can't trust. You can't trust it's going to be an honest interview. Yeah, especially since, yeah, he had he had lied a lot before. Yeah. And this was dangerous information he was trying to push out about. Right, right, right. You know, and my impression was that the interview actually was excellent. And Johnson was representative of this cohort of senators who were doing this thing. And he had an opportunity to challenge that action or that those choice of behaviors. So this listener asked me, oh, are you rethinking that position on Chuck Todd's choice to interview Johnson? In retrospect, should he have not had Johnson on? Right. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. But I'm actually really interested to know whether Chuck Todd, you know, reconsiders that. And so I I reached out to him and I asked him if, you know, maybe instead of doing, you know, first of all, I said that we we had thought that they did a good job on the interview and that ultimately it was it was a good decision to have him on. But we are rethinking that with maybe the idea that there could be other ways to confront Ron Johnson's position, either through analysis or inviting on outside experts or whatever, anything that doesn't give Johnson himself a platform to spew misinformation. Right. Maybe experts could debunk without giving Johnson the opportunity to spew his propaganda. Exactly. So Chuck Todd's response was actually very thoughtful and very considerate, which is not surprising considering that was our our impression when we interviewed him. And he mentioned that, first of all, he actually has thought a lot about this and reflected on it since the Capitol was breached on Wednesday. And it was similar to the debate that he and the staff had on this topic, you know, when they were deciding whether to have Ron Johnson on at all. You know, one of his reasons was, first of all, he said a lot of people could could disagree on this topic reasonably and say, you know, you should have done it this way or that way. But he thought that it served a purpose within D.C. and among other senators to just send the message like this is what happens when this position you guys are considering taken is kind of picked apart by someone in the media. You know, it's kind of an indefensible place to be. But at the same time, Chuck Todd recognized that there's a lot of things that they could have done differently and that they would have done differently if they had known it would come to something quite like this. So anyway, reflecting, I I think that's a very interesting point. And I do appreciate that, first of all, Chuck Todd responded to us and that they are having these conversations and that they had these conversations to begin with, right? It's not like they just sent out a bunch of invitations and someone said yes and they just booked them on. You know, they're actively having a lot of the same conversations that we're having and that, you know, viewers are having when they're considering these shows and the choices that they're making. And they're making them thoughtfully and they're rethinking them and trying to think about how to move forwards. And, you know, and to contextualize it to what we saw today, there was a lot of criticism we saw on Twitter literally just today about having some Republicans on to have time on on the show's platform to kind of defend themselves. And I don't know, like, I think you're of the mind with me, Brendan, that like, Republicans are part of our government. They are part of, they run like everything, not everything, but they're part of the fabric of our government. And yes, yeah. we should be careful about which voices we give too much time or too much airtime or people, you know, do we give a microphone to a liar? I think that's a valid criticism. But to say that anyone who did any wrong should never be on a new show or interviewed, I think is a lack of journalistic duty to demand answers from people who are in the fabric of our decision-making. Absolutely. I totally, totally agree with that. So I saw Mick Mulvaney 
on Fox News Sunday. You were talking about him a little bit before in his interview on Meet the Press. I thought he was an interesting voice representing the typical Republican of the last few years who has worked, has celebrated, and has championed President Trump. Yes. Like that, like he was sent out, like, I don't know, there must have been some big conference call of everyone who's like worked for President Trump or has been a vocal supporter and like, hey, someone needs to save our asses. Like, that's what it seemed like to me. Well, and and Mick Mulvaney got like the short straw. But I think I think it's important for these shows to have Mick Mulvaney on and that Mick Mulvaney is a more important person to have on right now than one of Trump's earlier former chiefs of staff, like a Reince Priebus. Or like, oh, that, yeah. you know what I mean? Like people who have very much distanced themselves from Trump, whereas Mick Mulvaney was literally still serving in the administration on the day this took place. And Mulvaney, you got to remember, was kind of the start of the chief of staff letting, quote, Trump be Trump. Yeah. Right. Before that, it was Kelly. And there was this idea of trying to control the chaos. Yeah. F- uh, former General John Kelly. Right. Retired general, I should say. So in this interview on Fox News Sunday, it was quite interesting. Chris Wallace essentially doesn't buy the claim by Mick Mulvaney that Wednesday was the line, that Trump crossed the line, that it, that it went too far. Things, or, or as Mulvaney says, things were different from what they were before. And so Chris well, Wallace even is saying, uh, I, I don't. Oh, my that. gosh. Yeah. So so listen to these two clips where Chris Wallace tries to understand why Mick Mulvaney was perfectly fine with previous behaviors of Donald Trump that also seemed pretty egregious. But again, Mick, you know, a lot of people say it didn't change on Wednesday. Kelly was right. The president was impeached when you were chief of staff for cutting off aid to Ukraine allegedly unless they dug up dirt on Joe Biden. And here you were at that time defending the president. Take a look. This described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we do we do that all the time with foreign policy. Whether the president should have been impeached or not, and I don't want to get into that argument. Why didn't you resign over that? Because I simply misspoke. Uh, and I've had that conversation with John Carl, who was the gentleman asking that question, who's a friend of mine many, many times. But it's actually a really uh, good I'm, I'm example. I'm not talking about your statement, Mick. I'm talking, I'm talking about why not resign over what I'm, I know you don't think was a proper thing for the president to do, cut off aid to Ukraine. No, uh, no, and, no, and Chris. No, no, Chris. Digging up Chris. dirt on Joe Biden. No, no, no. But, but, but Chris, no, no. Wait a second. That original impeachment, and I don't realize we're going to get into this today, had absolutely nothing to do with anything that was actually wrong. Let me ask you about some other things. You were a top member of the administration when the president defended the white supremacists at Charlottesville. You were a top member of the administration, not chief of staff, when the Trump administration separated parents coming across the border from their children. Why not resign over those? The, 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 I remember the kids in cages thing, which, of course, which a lot of folks gave a lot of attention to. And we've seemed to have forgotten, including you, Chris, that those pictures, many of the pictures of the kids in cages were taken during the Obama administration. They were Obama uh, cages. Nothing, simply, nothing, we were, nothing like with the policy under Donald Trump. 
Chris, these are policy differences, okay? These are things that you think the country should look one way, we think it should look another. These are differences of style, the way the president speaks. Did he misspeak at, at Charlottesville? Yes. Should he have corrected it? Yes. Did he handle it poorly? Yes. But it was not something that people resign over. If you talk for a living, as you and I do, you're going to misspeak from time to time. It's inevitable. Those are not the types of things that give rise to resignations. In fact, I don't think anybody, including John Kelly, resigned during any of those things. As I recall, John Kelly got fired and didn't resign. Wednesday was different. Wow. This is like Chris Wallace's time to just say, Mick Mulvaney, you're going to come on this show? Well, then it's going to be not just about Trump. It's going to be about you. Right. And I think it's a valid line of questioning, right? That there's, you know, any Republican that you hear that says this went too far or whatever, like, what moved you now that didn't move you before? Because there's been plenty of instances where maybe the stakes weren't quite as high, they weren't fatal, but they were pretty bad. And for kids in the cages and parents split from their kids, it was fatal for some of them. I think it's so important that we question the judgment of Republicans who have been supporting Trump, not just this week, but these last four years. It's so crazy here, the way Mick Mulvaney even now, is underplaying questions of style, as he calls it. These are questions of style. And yet the rhetoric that Trump used is what has inspired and incited the riot. And still he is he is using, you know, underplaying this language. Well, he wasn't the only one. I want to play Senator Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania, who at various moments had said some pretty stark things about Donald Trump's behavior on Wednesday. And yet, Senator Toomey continues to use inflammatory language. Take a listen. After Wednesday's attack, you took to the Senate floor to denounce President Trump as a demagogue. But we should note, you voted for him in November for the second time, even after Charlottesville, even after he used force to clear Lafayette Square for a photo op, even after he embraced QAnon conspiracy theorists, many of whom were in that mob. I'm not saying you bear any responsibility for what happened uh, on Wednesday, but do you regret not doing more to stop somebody you're now now calling a demagogue who's pretty obviously been a demagogue for his entire political career? Yeah, Jake, I don't think there's any doubt at all. There's none in my mind that the president's behavior after the election was wildly different than his behavior before. He descended into a level of madness and engaged in activity that was just absolutely unthinkable and unforgivable. For four years, he often put out offensive and objectionable tweets, actually sometimes dozens a day. I never felt, and I still don't think, that my job was to be his, the editor of his Twitter feed, although I was very often critical. But you know, this raises the question of why did 75 million people vote for this man whose character flaws were always very apparent? 75 million Americans are not stupid. They're not evil. What we did was we looked at a choice that we had between a uh, ever more radicalized left-wing Democratic Party and a man who's very, very flawed, but with whom we actually had very substantive success in the early parts of his administration. So did you hear the way Senator Toomey kind of like wiggled his way out of that question by saying, well, I just made a choice and I stand by my choice to vote for President Trump for re-election because the choice was between quote, an ever more radicalized left and Donald Trump. Even now, even today, 
he is defining Joe Biden and the left as radical. And you can find the definition of the word radical in any dictionary. Radical means advocating for thorough or complete political change. Now, no one would define Joe Biden ever as extreme or radical by any definition. And yet Toomey is doing exactly that. And by saying it, it's like he's pouring poison in the ear of his constituents to make them feel that by doing something like, I don't know, taking over the Capitol building, it's maybe necessary to stop complete political change. This is where things like take our country back. Like if you are Senator Toomey and you are saying the other side is radical, they want complete political change, they are extreme, but all you should do is just go and vote. You know, that's all you need to do. No, it's inspiring this violent action when you're painting the other side as extreme and radical. And seriously, in a week when domestic terrorists carrying Trump signs storm the Capitol, threaten the lives of our government, you're going to call Joe Biden radical? Give me a freaking break. And more than that, revisit your role in all of this. And that takes us to accountability. So when we're talking about accountability, it's really looking ahead. Who is, what are the consequences after what happened on Wednesday? So there were two moments in the interview with Senator Roy Blunt on Face the Nation that I thought touched this theme of accountability directly. First and foremost, I really appreciated how clear Margaret Brennan's questions were when asking Senator Blunt if Republicans are going to do anything. And this is Republican Senator Roy Blunt. Correct. And he is a senator from a Republican senator from the state of Missouri. His the other senator from Missouri is Senator Hawley. And just a quick note, when Margaret Brennan says them or is anyone going to hold them responsible? She's talking about President Trump. Are Republican uh, but, leaders going to hold them accountable in any way for it? Well, I think the country is uh, the, the right way to hold presidents accountable. Uh, the, the president should be very careful over the next 10 days uh, that his behavior is what you'd expect from a leader of the greatest country in the world. Now, my personal view is uh, that the president touched the hot stove on Wednesday and is unlikely to touch it again. Uh, and if that's the case, I th- we, we get every day we get closer to the last day of his presidency. We should be thinking more about the first day mm-hmm. of the next presidency than the last day of his presidency, in my view. And what? Yeah. Apparently inciting a fatal riot is touching the hot stove. Wow. Oh, my God. Whatever communication consultant told him that that was a good line should be fired. Or the residents of Missouri need to realize that that is unacceptable and not reelect this man. Wow, 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 wow. What a trash garbage response. Yeah, it's like saying 9-11 was a minor inconvenience because your flight was delayed. Like, this is Get the thing. Like, what, what needs to be more serious so it's actually a crisis? So it's actually something dangerous that is completely unacceptable and not just touching the hot stove. Well, even even our, our favorite Republican, Chris Christie, said <gasps> on the panel this week, on this week, he said, if inciting an insurrection isn't an impeachable offense, I don't know what is. Well, that's actually a perfect segue because my next comment or my next moment that I wanted to share 
from this interview with Senator Blunt is Margaret Brennan asking just that. Take a listen to Blunt's response. So you and don't support, you don't believe he has committed an impeachable offense? I don't think there's any, uh, uh, that's not really the question. The question well, is, that's is, my there question. Any, is there any, well, I'm giving you my answer. Is there any likelihood that he could possibly be removed between now and January the 20th? And if there's no additional ensuing event, my, my belief is there is no possibility of that. What? Yeah, I love it. He's like, that's not the question. She said, oh, hell no. It's my question. Like, <laughs> it's it's a matter of a judgment if you think something's impeachable. Like, Yeah. Well, and, I, this doesn't make any sense either. Like, first of all, he says he couldn't be removed between now and January 20th because there isn't enough time. But if he does something else really bad, he he will, there will be enough time. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It, Did she say that to him? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> Margaret Brennan, like, there was a lot of, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, that's, like, typical Margaret Brennan mm-hmms. But, like, just this answer is so painful. Like, this idea that Republicans can just look ahead to the work that they're going to do under President, soon-to-be President Biden, rather than dealing with the gunk and mess of affairs that President Trump is leaving with them right now is literally the definition of like irresponsible governance. Like this is your leader. This is who you guys elected. This is the leader of your party. And this is the state in which he's leaving it. What are you going to do about well, even it? And for- what their answer is, let's just get to Biden. Well, That's their answer. Forget about the party. Just a- an individual who is president did an insurrection against the U.S., like, by the way, this just takes me to what AOC said on this week. Take a listen to the way she describes it and how she makes an analogy to what would happen if another country did this. Hold on. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't leave it here. Are you going to leave all these pauses? <laughs> Maybe. Roy Blunt, Senator Blunt, this hot stove analogy, which is makes it seem like nothing. It underplays it. But the other side of that is, what the hell are you talking about? Donald Trump was impeached and everyone said well you know he's being impeached this is all he needs you know he's being punished this is hard he's you know he's going to be careful now no he was emboldened he was emboldened he was emboldened by the Mueller report which didn't lead to anything any any real consequences for him and then he did ukraine and then he was impeached for ukraine and then he's been further emboldened by his loss and has committed an even more egregious impeachable offense but, oh, you're right. When he touches the hot... I think this hot stove analogy, it's, it's, if it's real, Donald Trump has no feeling in his hands. <laughs> he's like the character... He's like the bad guy in that one James Bond movie with Pierce Brosnan. I don't know. Who All has, the Bond listen, movies are exactly the oh, same. I don't know it super well, but there's this, this villain who has like a bullet halfway in his brain, and he has no sense of feeling, right? And so he can't sure. feel pain. So. Someone needs to tell Roy Blunt that in his analogy world, Donald Trump is that villain. Well, no, this is the thing that, okay, no, we're, we're staying on Blunt longer than I anticipated, but me too. it's it's important. This is the other thing that drives me crazy is that, okay, so as a kid, I was that clumsy, dangerous child who like fell off a high ledge, who crashed into glass tables, who touched hot this irons. doesn't bode well for our, our, new, our new baby girl. I, I know. But <laughs> like, I, like my, my family can 
I'm sure will text me when this comes out tomorrow. But like, I was that kid always pushing like, how hot is this really? Or like, how sharp is this really? You know? (laughs) The answer, very hot, very sharp. Yeah, very hot, very sharp, very stabby. And like, there isn't malice underneath that. It's carelessness, Mm -hmm. right? Ah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no one touches the hot stove because they want to poke it. Right, exactly. So like, the idea that President Trump is like, he touched the hot stove. He wasn't pushing it to be like, you know, annoying. He wasn't pushing it or touching it to like, see what he could get away with. Like, there was malice here. And... The intention to do harm. Right. There was clear intention to do harm. And he didn't care who was going to be receiving that harm. Did not care at all. And he thought he benefited from that harm. Exactly. Directly. And that's the part where Blunt's comment is like, oh, no, this is garbage because you don't even realize that he was intentionally trying to hurt people. You were the one getting hurt. Literally, your life was in danger. And you were just letting him get a very mean finger wag. And that's it. Not even that. He thinks that the the country is going to hold him accountable. He doesn't have to. (gasps) All right, let's go to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is on this week and said something about if this happened to another country. And, you know, the, the several Republican members of Congress who opposed uh, raising objections to the certifying the Electoral College vote have written a letter to President-elect Biden opposing impeachment. Here's what the letter says. It says, in the spirit of healing and fidelity to our Constitution, we ask that you formally request that Speaker Nancy Pelosi discontinue her efforts to impeach President Donald J. Trump a second time. A second impeachment only days before President Trump will leave office is as unnecessary as it is inflammatory. They're saying for the sake of unity, forego impeachment. Well, you know, I think there's a couple of things. One is we have to understand that what happened on Wednesday was insurrection against the United States. That is what That is what Donald J. Trump engaged in, and that is what those who stormed the Capitol engaged in. And so when we talk about healing, the process of healing is separate and, in fact, requires accountability. And so if we allow insurrection against the United States with impunity, with no accountability, we are inviting it to happen again. That is how serious it is. And I do not believe that that perhaps my colleagues weren't in that room. Perhaps my colleagues were not fully present for the events on Wednesday. But half of we came close to half of the House nearly dying on Wednesday. And if a foreign head of state, if another head of state came in and ordered an attack on the United States Congress, would we say that that should not be prosecuted? Should we, would we say that there should be absolutely no response to that? No. It is an act of insurrection. It's an act of hostility. And we must have accountability because without it, it will happen again. This is what I was getting at, that it must go beyond party, right? The question of party. Anybody who did this, who incited this, needs to be held accountable. And I think AOC did a great job of shooting down this idea that, oh, it'll further divide the country. Now, a lot of people have said, well, wasn't denying the results of a free and fair election dividing the country? Because these are the very same Republicans who wrote that letter who engaged in that, which fueled these riots and this domestic terrorism. But she goes further and says, look, you can't heal unless you have accountability. And like, when you look back in history, that is such the case. In the hardest of heartbreaks, 
a country experiences in terms of war, in terms of genocide, yes, in, ten, in terms of civil war, what like truth and reconciliation in trials South Africa, in South like just in general, truth and reconciliation is such an important piece of work that has to be done for a country to move forward. Yep, or the Nuremberg trials, exactly in Germany. So I thought AOC did a, a fantastic job here of pushing back on this and talking about the need for justice and accountability. And I think calling it out, AOC is doing it here. I think it's important. Journalists do a very are very careful with their language here. But as scary as Wednesday was, it could have been so much worse. Yes. And to downplay that risk, to downplay the danger that all of those members of Congress were so acutely in... Because it's can you know it's easier for these Republicans rather than answering to it is just so irresponsible. So another Republican senator who was on was Republican Senator Pat Toomey from the state of Pennsylvania, and Pat Toomey on Meet the Press. He was on. I want to point out he was on Meet the Press as well as State of the Union, and Chuck Todd had a number of questions pushing back on him and his position, uh, but. Kind of here is the main point about whether he thinks that Donald Trump, you know, should face some consequences for what he did. In your view, what is the most appropriate way for Donald Trump to exit office? Well, I think the best way for our country, Chuck, is for the president to resign and go away as soon as possible. Um, I acknowledge that may not be likely, but uh, I think that would be best. Does not look as though there is um, the will or the consensus to exercise the 25th Amendment option. And I don't think there's time to do an impeachment. There's 10 days left before the president leaves anyway. I think the best thing would be a resignation. So that's Toomey's position. But I do want to point out kind of a a, a missing question that I was a little frustrated by and that I didn't see asked to Toomey and a number of these other Republicans, which is, what are you, Senator Toomey, going to do to make sure that President Trump leaves. Are you talking to his cabinet to get them to invoke the 25th Amendment? Are you calling President Trump and his advisors and encouraging him to resign? And if that doesn't work, are you going to do everything in your power to make this a speedy impeachment, to actually whip enough votes among your colleagues to get President Trump removed? You know, where's the question that says, look, we've seen norms broken in the Senate to achieve political ends. We've seen so many norms broken. Why not speed this process to remove a man who you, Pat Toomey, described as being in a kind of madness? We didn't hear those questions, unfortunately. We did not hear questions that pressed him about what he's going to do, rather than just saying, do you think, would you vote for impeachment? Or do you think he should resign? How about what are you going to do about it? Because you can do something about it. It was Republican members of Congress who went to President Nixon and told them that the votes were there to impeach him if he did not resign. And then he resigned. There is power in people like Senator Toomey that they can exercise and they should be asked at a time like this whether they are willing to stand up and exercise it beyond just going on television. You're making an important distinction here because everyone has opinions and thoughts and reflections based off of what they experienced, right? But 
and those reflections might be really valuable to to learn. But it's also like, what are the actionable things that you're willing to do? Yeah. Right? You are a legislator. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to convince your colleagues to do? Like, it's not just a matter of just tell us how you feel. Exactly. What are you going to do? And we've said this many times on Polylog that like, these are the questions that need to be asked. Questions based in action and not just opinion. But Senator Toomey made it pretty clear in his interview on State of the Union that he didn't really want to do anything, and he hoped that accountability was someone else's job. Regardless of the timing and logistics, and whether or not there would be 67 Senate votes to convict the president, remove him from office, should President Trump face any consequences for inciting a mob, a terrorist mob, to attack the Capitol, resulting in bloodshed? Uh, Yeah, he should. And uh, that's part of uh, the dilemma here. Um, Impeachment does have the virtue of a politically accountable action that is taken uh, when uh, when it's warranted. Um, Unfortunately, the the mechanically that uh, that is certainly very problematic. Look, I think there's also a possibility that there's criminal liability here. I'm not a I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a prosecutor. So uh, and I do know that the you know, the standard for a conviction in a criminal prosecution is quite high, so I'm not sure whether that could be met. But uh, there should be accountability. I will say there is one very, very important form of accountability. I think the president has disqualified himself from ever uh, certainly serving in office again. I don't think he would is electable in any way. And I don't think he's going to be exercising anything like the kind of influence that he has had uh, over the Republican Party going forward. Just to be clear, you're talking about possible, although neither of us are attorneys, possible criminal liability for, for President Trump you're talking about. That's right. That's right. I, I, like I said, I don't, I don't know whether he's met a standard that could actually be prosecuted and, and, and gain a conviction, but the behavior was outrageous and there should be accountability. There should be accountability, Senator Toomey says. I He's wonder, just not willing to be the one to do it. Yeah, I wonder who could be a part of that accountability. So speaking of that accountability, just want to point out, Representative Jim Clyburn, Democrat, South Carolina, member of the House leadership, was also in State of the Union, talked about what and when impeachment will happen, basically vowed that it will happen in the House of Representatives, but if slash when it does, they will probably hold it for up to 100 days so that it doesn't gum up the early days of the Biden administration. Because Mitch McConnell has made it very clear that he, as the leader of the Senate right now, is not really willing to speed the process. So um, I didn't realize we were going to talk about this, but and I don't have a clip for it, but that's very different than what Clyburn said on Fox News Sunday, what did he where say he pretty Fox much News? said that, you know, it's the House's job to indict and the Senate has to figure out what they're going to do on the Senate side. But... There's, you know, that the Senate work does should not impact if or when the House decides to press charges of impeachment against the president. And then Josh Hall, no, not Josh Hawley, Josh Holmes, the former chief of staff of McConnell was on the panel and later said, well, Clyburn isn't being totally clear here because the House, according to Josh Holmes, who's like a Republican strategist, The House can impeach and they can hold those charges. But the minute it goes to the Senate, Mitch McConnell or the majority leader, if that's Mitch McConnell or if it's Schumer in just a few weeks, 
they have to move on those charges immediately upon receipt. That it can't sit and wait in the Senate, it can sit and wait in the House. And so they might be able to press charges and and pass impeachment charges, but then it, it will just kind of like hold um, in the House possibly. That's exactly, I mean, he mentioned that. Let me just play this little bit of this clip since we're having this conversation here. Here's what he said. Uh, Mitch McConnell is a pretty good legislator and he's doing what he thinks he needs to do to be disruptive of uh, President Biden. But I will say to Mitch McConnell, uh, Nancy Pelosi is smarter than that. Uh, We'll take the vote that we should take in the House and she will make the determination as when is the best time to get that uh, vote and get the managers appointed and move that legislation uh, over to the Senate. It just so happens that if it didn't go over there for 100 days, uh, it could be, let's give uh, President-elect uh, Biden uh, the 100 days he needs to get his agenda off uh, and running, and maybe we'll send uh, the articles uh, sometimes after that. He was not nearly as specific on Fox News Sunday talking about they might hold the charges for 100 days. He pretty much says Biden should move forward with his legislative plan that there is that these are separate priorities. The will of the people says that this is what they want and he should move aggressively with it mm. and that the impeachment should not be impeding on that. So interesting. All right. Well, let's uh, kind of takes us to the future. Naomi, what is the impact on the future and how did the shows kind of nod towards that? Yeah, looking ahead, I mean, I think there's a lot of value checks that everyone is going to be doing, you know, the average voter, news organizations. But I think in particular, the Republican Party has a lot of reflection and analysis to do in terms of how much they want to stay married to Trump's base, how much they want to cater to them. And how much that support matters, because depending on how much that support matters will greatly impact the accountability and consequences that might be ahead for President Trump. John Dickerson, as I mentioned earlier, was on Face the Nation, and he really made the case that the Republican Party needs to decide whose ideas matter essentially right now and and where they want to go ahead. You know, the president's son and son-in-law said that it's no longer the Republican Party, it's Donald Trump's party. So I think of your question in two ways. What happens to Donald Trump and what happens to the political market he created that future Republican politicians are going to try to appeal to? After the election, the president said the, the election was stolen. Republican lawmakers knew that was a lie. They knew there was a cost to that lie. But because of the political market Donald Trump had created, what Donald Trump said was true was true. And those lawmakers worried about blowback. So instead of a healthy political market where facts, reason and tradition operate, this was a market where facts were whatever you wanted to be. Persuasion didn't matter. Demonization mattered. So that fills up a rally crowd, right? Politically, it cost Republicans the presidency, the House and the Senate. Governing wise, the founders told us this was a terrible way to work where you have the, the standard for the presidency to be just what the rally crowd likes. Mm-hmm. The standard should be the one Mitt Romney said, which is sometimes you honor your voters by telling them the truth. So what standard survives? Is, is there reflection about the choices that were made? Does somebody stand up now against lies? Or does the market that Donald Trump created exist? And if that's the case, then this insurrection was just an inconvenience. And that market exists. And Donald Trump will have a big role in that in the future. 
Very well said here by John Dickerson hearing it. I, I listened to John Dickerson on the Slate Political Gab Fest this week, and he talked a bit about this market that Donald Trump created, but I think he, he explicates it so much better here or, or more fully here. And we should note that that market, the market as he describes it, where Republican lawmakers recognize that facts are whatever you want it to be, persuasion doesn't matter, demonization matters, well, that market has been hit with a major, major blow this week as we saw Twitter take Trump off, remove Trump, remove tons of white supremacists and other bad actors. We saw Parler, first of all, booted from the Google Play Store, so it's not available on Android. This is the social network that was featured on Fox Fox. News Sunday as their power player of the week literally just, what, three weeks ago? This social network, the app was booted from the Google Play Store, then booted from the Apple Store, the iPhone, so you can't get it on the iPhone, the App Store. And then Amazon took it, their web services is is no longer. Yeah, so they don't have any servers anymore. We saw payment processors say we're not processing payments for Donald Trump or his ilk. And now tonight we have seen companies say they are not going to give any money to any of the Republicans in Congress who, any political donations, I should say, to any of the people who voted against certifying Joe Biden's Electoral College win. Which I think that is a huge turning point. Right. So we see, and and of course, Facebook, we should point out as well, shut down and silenced Donald Trump as well. And a lot of these things are permanent. They're not like, oh, this is just, uh, you know, uh, until President Trump is out of office. These are permanent changes. We also saw the president's own email server list, which is very, you know, highly valued. Makes a lot of money from it. You know, shut down as well. So Or shut him down. Shut him down, yes. As John Dickerson, you know, mentions here, if Republican lawmakers are making calculations about whether they're going to tell the truth or do what's best for the country or, you know, heed to this market of falsehoods, well, that market is, is being hit pretty hard now. And so the last clip that I had, Naomi, was a clip from the end of Meet the Press, literally the last seconds of the show. At the end of the panel discussion, which was pretty darn good with quite a few journalists, Hallie Jackson closes it out in a discussion about where the Republican Party is, where it goes from here, and where Trump's voters go. I thought it was interesting that Senator Toomey on your show earlier described it as not viable that the president could have another shot in 2024. There are people in and around the White House who believe the same, that the president has, in essence, disqualified himself. Perhaps he will say he will run, uh, but there is not a real sense that he could have an actual shot. Although, Chuck, the people who support him, the people who he has activated, in essence, over the last four years, they are with him until the end. And that that group uh, is not going anywhere. The president will take advantage of a media ecosystem, not mainstream media, but an ecosystem that will give him oxygen for years to come. If that is what happens and this Republican Party allows Donald Trump to still be an influential figure, it will end up in the ash, ash bin of history. Uh, That's all for today. Thank you for watching. Wow, what a closing. Yeah, that's it. Chuck Todd is just like, you are dooming yourselves, Republicans, if you allow this man to have a future in your party. On Fox News Sunday, Jonathan Swan and Josh Holmes talk about this a little bit, like what the Republican Party has to do, essentially, to create some distance between the party and and Trump supporters. And it seems 
nebulous if they even want to do that, let alone how. Yeah. But I also, you know, before we close out the show, I also wanted to talk about looking ahead, what this threat means, what the coverage of this attack means, and what it might protect or prevent. And all this talk around like whether or not it's worth to impeach President Trump or there's only a few days or let's look ahead to Biden. Like these terrorists, these domestic terrorists came from all across this country. Like it's not like they just came from D.C., Maryland and I don't know, like North Carolina or like it's not like they came just only driving in. Right. People flew The woman who was killed, shot, trying to break down the door in that hallway, she was from California. She was from San Diego. Yeah. And she was a vet. There's a lot of talk around. yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of early analysis that says there was a lot of, that a significant amount of people that attacked the Capitol on Wednesday were active military or veterans or police officers or firefighters. Yeah. And, you know, they're part of our public safety fabric of this country and are also willing to do what they did on Wednesday. I say that because if there are not real consequences to what happened on Wednesday, that violence will spread to other places. And it already did. On Wednesday, there were attacks on about a half a dozen state capitals as well. It hasn't been getting a lot of coverage because of Wednesday, but We'll see more of that in in cities and municipalities that do not have the bandwidth to fully protect themselves. And I just I don't understand this talk about should we impeach or what do we want to have any consequences to these attackers and to President Trump? Like if we don't do anything as a country to the shit show that we saw last Wednesday There's just going to be a lot of it all over the country. And it's going to be in your, you know, city hall or in your county or or your state capital. And like that should be like, I don't understand like the guttural response and and fear of that possibility. And I hope we see that coming in in future coverage. There's there was a lot to discuss today. So I'm not like upset that it wasn't discussed today specifically. But that's what I'm looking ahead at. Like if there are no consequences what does this mean moving forward? Well, I, you know, as you're describing that, Naomi, and you're totally right about all those things, it makes me think of how immediately after this happened at the Capitol, there were two lines of discussion. One was the political line, how our politics could descend into this place. And the other was the security line, like how, how could the Capitol be so vulnerable, right? right? And we all learned how vulnerable it could be. And we're learning, as we did with the Washington Post story we read tonight, how how vulnerable all these different agencies are when they don't interact with each other or they're worried about optics and other stupid things like the Pentagon was with the National Guard, as we learned. So two lines, right? The political side and the security side. And on the security side, the response by everyone has been swift. This is unacceptable. We must take immediate steps to protect ourselves against this in the future. As Chris Wallace described, we just heard him talk about the wall that has been put up, the fencing around the Capitol building, the people's house, to protect it from something like this happening again. And there's endless talk about how the protection will be arrayed for the incoming inauguration. At the same time, though, that same level of urgency must exist to protect our country, our democracy, from politicians 
doing this again because this was fueled by politicians. Right. It's rhetoric that led to violence. And you can't stop the violence if you're not addressing the rhetoric. <laughs> like Exactly. Like I don't we, understand why that's complicated. Like, there is a fence around the Capitol building physically, but there is nothing so far politically right. that has been done to protect our country from this happening again. Nothing yet. Right. Nothing, nothing. So we are watching so much news. We have not shut off Twitter in many days. And there's a lot to to monitor in terms of what we learn and how the coverage unfolds each and every day. We're going to we're going to skip show ratings this week because some shows had better questions than others. Some shows framed things in in a better way than others, but overall, if you're you care about the Sunday shows, I'd encourage you to listen to all of them. Yeah, and this Take is Take a look a, at all of them. This is a week I think that is like a timestamp for each one of them to understand how they look at these once in a generation historical moments. Yeah, we can learn a lot about each of these shows and the journalists behind them. By and the what values they, of those shows. Yep, by what, what they chose to highlight this week. Absolutely. So I, I know I'm going to go back and revisit the two shows I didn't have a chance to look at. <laughs> of course you are. And this week, our dialogue challenge, I guess I would encourage our listeners to have a conversation about what it would take for you to feel hopeful for our democracy. Is that just new presidential leadership? Is that a new Republican Party? Is that more security? Is that like, what is it that would kind of reinforce your optimism? What if a you have any question? It has me thinking quite a bit. I'm like, Oh, all the above, please check, check, uh, check. I hope so. I really do. Or I or a new media ecosystem, right? Yeah, that too. Check new standards based in fact, can we just start there, please? And just have differences on what policies we think will make lives better instead of insane conspiracy theories. There's a lot to work on. And one tiny step is just talking about what we're willing to do. And if you want to share any of your thoughts on any of this craziness, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. I promise we read pretty much every email as it arrives and we respond to every email long after it arrives. <laughs> yeah. But we you, do respond. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at bstyle and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and to all of our listeners. Thanks for joining us and entrusting us with some of your time and thinking in this crazy, crazy period. Stay safe and keep talking to each other. Bye. Bye.